This week, we are joined by special guest and world-renowned chef, Jonathan Gushu. We talk with Jonathan about his unique early experiences working in the Japanese Alps, in the Lake of the Woods area in Kenora, Ontario, in London, England, and how these experiences, along with several others, helped shape his culinary career. We discuss the economics and the hospitality industry and how operators have to provide more than just a paycheck to employees in this day and age. Jonathan talks about his culinary style and how he's influenced by the local surroundings and regional producers and how he ties that all in together to create a sense of place. And we discuss creating value for price paid in today's competitive restaurant climate. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm Kip Saunders. I'm your host. With me, as always, producer extraordinaire Dan Soretta. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Just enjoying this lovely little snowfall we had today on uh, January 17th. Yeah, recording on the 17th. I've been shoveling all day, so that was great fun. Yeah, it was about 40 centimeters of snow. So. Yeah, <laughs> and it's all going to melt in a couple days. Yeah, so. I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's too. a lot of first world problems we got yeah. going on. Yeah. <laughs> I should get this out of the way. I keep getting burned for not promoting my own shit on my own show. So I should say that we are doing bottle shop to go at both bars right now. Sugar Run, Downtown Kitchener, Uptown, Babylon Sisters. So just stay posted to both those Instagrams at Sugar Run Bar, at Babylon Sisters Bar. And you can find out when we're doing bottle shops. And at Babylon Sisters, if you're brave enough, you can even sit on our patio and have a drink. Mm, yeah, Hot diggity. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we got a great guest for you, as always, this week on the Industry Podcast. Chef Jonathan Gushu will be joining us very shortly. Uh, before we get to him, we should say that you should be subscribing to the show if you like it. If you want to leave a rating and a review, that also helps us tremendously. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, and if you've got a service industry story to tell, then you should e- uh, email us directly at info at the industry club. Or you can Instagram us or DM us on Instagram at The Industry Podcast. Yes, and that contact info is in the show notes as always. Shout out, as always, again to Zach Hanna at ZachHanna.co for the artwork he does for the Instagram, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. And we should also mention that you should be checking out the archives, lots of great recent shows. We had Kadrian Posul recently. We had Andrew Da, Dominique Jackson. And Heather Scholestall. Yeah, Heather Scholestall recently. That was a very interesting episode. So if you didn't check that one out from last week, you should. Uh, Our podcast always drops on all your major platforms at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Mondays. Mm -hmm. And so enough about us. Let's get to our guest. Uh, Jonathan Gushu is with us. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm well. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for doing it. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, Jonathan, let's just dive right into this. I was going over your bio that you sent to me earlier, because, you know, uh, a responsible host does this kind of research. Responsible, and, eh? <laughs> very responsible. <laughs> so I noticed that you, st- uh, where you had written that you had, you, were, you kind of started out training in the Japanese Alps. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Talk to us a little bit about how that came to be and what, what did you learn there? I did. I, that was pretty amazing. That came to be. That was uh, actually a program off. How would I put? Uh, offered by the the conservatives when they were in power in Newfoundland. Yeah. Uh, that they'd started doing a lot of training. Or sorry, a lot of trading directly with with the Japanese with the Capelin fishery. And what they wanted was they were anticipating more tourists to Newfoundland, which they get quite a bit of because of the icebergs. Um, so they wanted to integrate. Have have. And they were pretty head on this. So this is 20 years ago mm-hmm. that they, they sent uh, about a dozen of us from Canadian hospitality, um, a majority from Newfoundland, about six of us from Newfoundland. And uh, we went we went to uh, we went all over Japan like we all didn't go together. 
they separated us all and sort of with the idea that we would learn Japanese and we would learn the culture and everything like that. You know, I was there for almost two years, uh, but really, you know, and you're just sort of scratching the surface on such a, a monumental country. Like it's yeah. there's so much to it and its history is, you know, so much older than ours and just really just um, what we did learn is that you can't understand a culture and, and a people in just 18 months. Sure. <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> yeah. and, and, but I mean, it was, I mean, as far as the experience goes, it was, um, it was unbelievable. It was very difficult to acclimate. It took about six months, um, you know, in which every day we would all, we lived with a bunch of, in, when I was there, it's funny. I tell people this, they don't really believe it. I lived in the house with 15 Australians in a Russian van. So <laughs> it was, you can imagine what that was like. We joked, they said, um, all who enter here, you know, what is it? They said, hold on to your liver. And uh, so it was, <laughs> it was, it was one of those kind of places. It was a lot of fun. We were young. I was 20. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there was, but there was a lot to learn. And then you taught, I think the biggest thing we all learned out of it, like we all still, a lot of us are still in touch because we considered it wasn't interesting. It was a bit of a rough experience because they, you have no choice but to acclimate. You're right. you acclimate or you're out. Sure. So, so was it, that was for, from a Westerner, that was, you know, you know, thinking, you know, the sun shines out of your ass, like yeah. you sort of, it was, it was, it was very different. And would you know what, probably the most beneficial experience for me was to actually be a minority. And the way you're treated as a minority, that was an interesting experience all around. I mean, there's so much, I think it did, it framed my cooking. It framed me as a person, uh, but a very, if anyone is thinking about doing it, you know, do your research. It is, um, I work for a Japanese company, which is uh, apparently unheard of because no matter what, you're always a gaijin or a foreigner. So right. there's the foreigner level. So everyone's above you, even the dishwashers. Uh, so if you can, huh. it's kind of, it's that way. They play with you a long time, like they yeah. play with uh, your mind and see how you're going to react. It's really a very different kind of experience than just going into a normal Western kitchen. You train, you leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's a whole, in, in the Japanese kitchen, there's a whole culture you have to adopt and understand first before you even start. But we had we had fun times. I mean, they certainly, uh, one fun experience I had that would be different was uh, I, I, I went in there. I got a job as a chef to party. I was in there about three hours and they told me, the chef came over and started yelling at me in Japanese. And basically, I was told I didn't even know how to hold a knife, let alone use one. And uh, so <laughs> they were, you know, so they took my knife, knives away for a week. And then I was allowed to peel things. Uh, then I went on to peeling. I would only allow for three months till I learned what they said to use my knife. I had to, I would just peel kennel. That's all I did for three months. And that was that was from 530 in the morning to 930 p.m. at night. Holy and shit. then they and you did that. And what was interesting, too, is the psychological kind of game they play is that I was working in Garmage and we did. This was a very big hotel, like we had 1600 rooms. So we would do about an average of 880. I remember it was 883 people for dinner every night. And um, and we did we did a Western section. So we, uh, you know, cooked steaks and did and did. But a lot also, you know, steaks are a big thing and their beef is very important. And we, we you know, they cook it their way. And we also have a, a, like a grill that they can cook it a Western way. So they get that sort of experience in Japan, a Western experience in Japan, um, but also doing, you know, traditional garmage work, which, you know, is a lot of where, you know, for, you know, so many people, you wish you could use a slicer or things like that. So as long until I learned to use a knife, no one in the kitchen was allowed to use a slicer. Oh, shit. <laughs> so you, <laughs> you learn, you know, through that kind of psychological way of making people learn, it, you learn pretty fast. Right. Like that because you're you as as a team, you know, everyone's just leering at you every day. It's like can you, you know You're holding up the team. Use, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's hope, like the know, equivalent of a coach making like some the whole team run laps if one guy fucks up. That's right. Yeah. You're only, yeah, you're only as strong as your weakest link. 
Right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so so you grew up in uh, in Newfoundland. Correct. Yep. Yeah, and then so what, when did you discover your sort of love for cooking, and that that was kind of what you were you realized that you wanted to do with your life? I, I really I discovered it very early. I just didn't think just for given I and you know I still battle with it a bit today, worrying a bit too much about what other people think. So at that time when I was when I wanted to cook and I knew I wanted to cook, I honestly felt I couldn't because it was one of those jobs that people did if they couldn't do anything else. Right. Uh, most of the you know people I knew that were cooks were convicts at that point, and <laughs> yeah. you know so you know and my dad was a judge, so it really you know trying to tell him that I wanted to be a cook, you know, it was just like he just it didn't it didn't compute so i sort of avoided it for many years Mm -hmm. um and you know kind of kept it i was always in the industry so i was always you know started as a bus boy when i was 13 and then just went from there you know really working through uh hotels and restaurants but always in front of house because i was just i didn't have the courage to really tell my father so because you know my father like everything right like with that age group you know my dad would have been about 91 by now uh, so he, he, you know, felt you get a degree. Yeah. So I was working towards, um, you know, uh, a bachelor of science, you know, specializing in hospitality. Um, and then what I did, what, it, what did happen is that I finally felt that, and everyone was telling me at the time. And so this would have been about 91 or 92 that I would have been uh, trying desperately trying to get into four seasons hotels. Now at the time they only had about 14 hotels worldwide and they were super luxury. They were the most luxurious places in the world. And they still had a heavy, heavy focus on cuisine. So their training was amazing. But the only job, I, I mean, I don't know how many letters I wrote. I got at least like 40 probably rejection letters from four seasons in, in probably 18 months. And eventually finally got one. I think they just said, look, get this guy something. So he leaves us alone. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got a job as a, this was, so I was applying for like front office, like front desk or anything like that. Oh, okay. Uh, because, because that was my degree. So they said, look, we can get you a job as a breakfast cook's assistant at Manaki Lodge, Four Seasons Fly and Resort in Kenora, Ontario, if you want. And that was, if you want to join this company, that's what you got to do. So I did it. A lot of fun living on Lake of the Woods, really cool. But I did, basically, I found that I couldn't, for my first day, it was just such an amazing outlet for creativity, you know, the, the freedom they had. And I was surrounded by all these people that were coming from, this resort used to only be open about five months a year. You could, it was a fly-in resort. So at the time, I mean, no one does that anymore, but at the time it was like the way to be super, you know, bougie, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so at that time, you know, they had all their cooks were coming in from all over the world. They were from Thailand, uh, France, Spain, Belgium, um, Austria. Like it was, it was unbelievable because I mean, the core of four seasons at the very beginning was all culinary was very much. It started all the guys on top were German chefs. So they were all how how they I don't know how they all got so involved with the German with a Canadian company I don't know but that's the way it works so it was um, it was it was really fascinating to see like how all these people work together and and I just couldn't like how they traveled and the way a lot of them lived like they would spend they would come to the summers for for in work in Kenora and then they would go back to the West Indies in the winter and work at Nevis Four Seasons Nevis uh, and things like that or even like a lot of them traveled between Four Seasons and Relais Chateau like in Chiang Mai and and Bangkok, and I mean, even Singapore, and all that. It was just, I just was immediately, I was taken. So then I, you know, I finally made the call to my father and said, <laughs> you know, I, I want to switch and go into culinary management. And well, you know, he hung up. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, then, uh, I, and then I think he talked to me, I don't know, I think he called me about three months later and, you know, accepted it. And, but then, I mean, the great nice thing is he said, you know, I'm really glad that you had the courage to do this because. 
to be honest, I've hated every day of the law that I've been in it and oh, doing really? a job, like yeah. actually watching you and see how much you love work and how much work you do when you're not at work for work. He said he, he just, to him, he was thought it was very admirable. He was, and it was really, it sort of turned around because he became very happy with to see that, you know, it was funny in his world. He honestly believed people weren't happy at work. That's just not the way it was. Right. You just so, work to work to live and not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That you can. I mean, but I think, I mean, you don't want to live to work either. I mean, no. I think what we're all searching for now and know we need is balance. And I yeah. find that, you know, that we can all find that nice balance, you know, mm-hmm. well, apparently we'll all be much better people. Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> I'm still yeah, working on it. <laughs> so then you also uh, did some studying or work and, work and working as well in London, correct? Yep. So talk to us a little bit about that experience, because obviously London, especially high-end restaurants in London every, uh, and bars and restaurants, it's, a, it's I mean, world-renowned, right? Yeah, I went from, so I went right from Japan. I, the idea uh, in Japan was, I was looking at jobs in Sydney and London. Um, is where I wanted to be specifically. I got a call from, I did get a call from, he was uh, the executive chef of the Swallow Royal Hotel in Bristol. So I actually went to Bristol first and worked there with Michael Kitts for a year, who was the head of the uh, culinary Olympic team for Great Britain. And he, um, that's where I got into a lot of charcuterie and terrines. And that's where it was the most exposure. Like I couldn't believe, I kind of bullshitted my way into that position. I told them, you know, kind of fluffed up what I could do. Mm-hmm. And then I really, I found myself in that job in hot water for a long time. Um, <laughs> but I learned so much because I, this guy was unbelievable. Like he would write menus. We would have daily menus. So we had our, our normal, we had a fine dining restaurant and an all day restaurant in this hotel. Uh, we had a bar and a lounge. It was pretty upscale. He also, we also had a daily menu for both restaurants, which is a crazy. And this guy was nuts. Like he would write, you know, menus probably 40 weeks out, like, up to 40 weeks out, I remember we had one list. And that was, so you knew everything. So, <clears throat> but we had a terrine of the day. And I mean, terrine or charcuterie takes, that's a great deal of planning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was an amazing experience for me. I also, uh, you know, for organization in the kitchen and it got, um, and the, the Brits are really obsessed with food, which I, being a Canadian, I, I've never really, I ne- I'd never had that experience. I mean, I learned more in England than I did in Japan. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of different what I learned in Japan. I learned a lot more about respect in Japan than I learned about food, I think. Uh, but in, in, in England, uh, you know, uh, the first job taught me sort of organization and then um, and then really the great exposure to European products. Like I'd never seen a truffle. I'd never seen foie gras, you know, own, all only in pictures. I'd never seen all these amazing, these like Point Levesque and, and Epoise and all these cheeses that everyone talked about, Cantal and Comte. Um, and then I, what in turn, so this is where, kind of where the bullshit comes in is that I sort of, said i was you know i was you know the head of this garmage department for you know that served 880 people a night so they put me right in as the buyer for all this stuff oh. so that was really <laughs> quite tricky so yeah. obviously the guy selling figured this out pretty quick he's like this guy doesn't have a fucking clue what he's doing right so I turned, you know, so they send me down they were just like the way to do it the head of garmage goes and buys the cheese simple mm. yeah so i went and bought the cheese and you know long story short i absolutely got my ass handed to me when i got back <laughs> so, um, you know, because I spent, I didn't know what I was, I was just like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like everything the guy was saying to me, he's like, you got to try this. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't truly have a concept of like during the season, what a black Paragord truffle costs. I mean, I knew it's fuck, it's expensive, yeah. but I, you know, I had no idea that it was that expensive. It was more than gold, you know? So it was, <laughs> anyway, again, I learned, I learned, I learned so much so fast in England because it was just so, it was all like everyone had to you really didn't get training. Like everyone was, it was sort of, you were hitting the ground running. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very difficult. I mean, I think I was, it was thankful that it was one of those jobs that you were there sort of 7.30, you know, it was an eight o'clock start, but you had to be there at seven to get pots and pans. And then it didn't finish till about 11 or 12 at night. Mm-hmm. And I really think that was the only thing that constant where I really didn't know what I was doing. I think the only thing that helped me is that I was always there and I, I was able to sort of a buffer or control it all. I had, I was so fortunate to have like three of these amazing French apprentices that saved my ass on a daily basis. So it was, uh, I don't know. It's a lot. Of, I look back and laugh, but I was scared shitless every day there. Yeah. I bet. And so did that. Uh, so I didn't interrupt you, but like, the, um, no, no. how did these experiences sort of shape how you run a kitchen now? Like, do you find the value in like sort of on the job training as opposed to like book learning and going to school? Like, or is it like, or is the best scenario to be like sort of a mesh of the two? Do you weigh one more uh, heavily than the other? I don't, I think it really depends. If you were just going to go, like if you lived in, Paris or maybe New York City or anything like that. You know what? Really, you don't. If you you're in a city that you could stay in and essentially work at 20 great restaurants throughout your life, and and if you do it in that manner, you wouldn't really need school because you're getting right. better training. Like if you're going to Laverne Dam, I don't think any you know, and you got five years at Laverne Dam, I don't think anyone's going to go. Well, you didn't go to school, you right? Know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so I think it depends. Like I think if if you know there were uh, people in college listening to this, like I would, if you want to travel. If you want to work in other countries, that's when your credentials become important. Like if I didn't have a degree from a culinary school, I wouldn't have been able to work in in, in London. I'm right. not exactly sure if that was England, but I know when I moved to London, it was incredibly important. That, mm. And that's all you needed. They didn't care if you had certification. Now, if you had a like if you were a, a, a trade certified chef, I, I've never in my life been asked that question anywhere. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, so when you get back from London, where you where did you go from there, and what then? Uh, at some point, you land here in Kitchener Waterloo. How? What? What made yeah, that decision? From, yeah. From well, from London, I went to uh, the Four Seasons in, or the Wedgwood in Vancouver, and then went to the Four Seasons of Vancouver, and then got um, tran- during SARS, I was transferred. I was kind of, I mean, I was kind of fortunate for me, but during SARS, I was transferred to the Four Seasons in Toronto. But they said. They basically said you can, it was kind of like go to Toronto or leave or quit. Right. Right. So because I didn't, I really, I mean, I was, I was loving the West coast, you know, and, you know, kind of on, I remember in that week prior, I had said, you know what, I could live here. And then it figures, you know, Murphy's law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but then, but it was very fortunate for me because when I arrived in, in Toronto, I, I got to work with Lynn Crawford and uh, Jason McLeod who were uh, amazing. I also got to work under Thomas Bellick for a while. Uh, but I got, um, I was, they put me in as I got the chef's job at uh, Truffles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was interim. And uh, that was a pretty stressful six months. My first six months there was totally like, you know, if you screw up, you're fired kind of thing. So that was, and they don't do that anymore, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and it's funny, you know, it was really hilarious. You know, my salary was when I uh, started as the chef of Truffles. I was, I got uh, my salary. I remember getting a contract for $32,000. Oh. was my was my salary <laughs> wow it was, it was it was it was an improvement because in london i only made thirteen thousand pound a year right so, yeah and do you find like specifically in your line of work it takes a bit to get to the level where you're making a reasonable annual salary like you really gotta have worked in a lot of places and moved up the ladder quite drastically well i think and you have to show commitment too because yeah. i mean a lot of it, what, what young cooks don't learn and what I never learned, what I was never shown and it never is mentioned is that they have to, people don't understand how important money is in the restaurant and you can't, the only thing, labor will kill you, especially yeah. in a restaurant. 
like more so, you know, there's a, you can, you can, you know, do some driving in a hotel, but not in the restaurant. It's like, it's right there in front of your face, like how you're uh, making a mess of this with your labor. So you really have to, you just have to be super careful, like with, with those things. Yeah. Labor is, I can tell you from my angle as well. That's a, that was the biggest eye opener to me when I moved to the ownership side was how much of a anchor labor cost can be you're like, and you should, you kind of know that, but you don't really realize it until you're responsible for it. And you're seeing no, how the sure. numbers are playing out. It's well, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you can, and that's why like operators, I mean, people, I don't, I, it's, it's just funny now. And I don't know why, like I knew I went into that job at Truffles going, well, that's an atrocious pay, but I realized I have to prove myself first. Mm-hmm. I mean, I left Truffles being paid almost double what that was. Mm-hmm. So uh, three years later. So, I mean, it gets, but they want to, I think that's the thing we're struggling with is that, especially now it's even more so like it's, it's, it's very hard. Like, well, I've been on both sides now. So I've been an operator and I've you know been a chef and it's to, to look at both of that and to really, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and say, look, I'm going to pay this guy 60, 70, 80 out of the gate. Don't know who he is or she is. And you know, it that's, that's really, if that's an URSA, that is a huge thing you can't, that'll take, you know, so after you fire this person, that will take you six months to recover that. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, and I don't know how it's just, I, I don't know how you get the message across. Like when I was talking about balance earlier, that's what, I mean, in, in the hospitality industry, certainly in Southern Ontario, and it's probably everywhere, you know, we, there, it's our labor all the right. time. It's, yeah. it's endless. Like with the, to be able to even get something going or anything like that, you know, you really need to, um, it, we need, we need a new solution sort of, I, I don't know. It's gotta be give and take on both sides, which is hard now, because I think what we're going to go into now is it looks like we're going to have some very pig headed people on both sides. Yeah, I say, agree. You know, you, yeah. You need me. Well, give me this. And then, I mean, it's, you know, I hope it does because this is at least now we've, it looks like we're going to have that conversation is going to come up. So I hope anyone now looking for work in hospitality, you know, is willing to sit down and, you know, we, I think with almost every person, you need to have that conversation, find out what they want, find out what they need and really find out how you can give them, you know, give them more than a paycheck. Yeah. And I think for like, we all have to get a little bit creative too, because the margins are so slim, as you know, as well as anybody in the hospitality industry that like, if we don't, we almost have to get creative with how we're rewarding staff, because you can't just constantly throw money at the situation, because then the place is going to go under. It's just the, the margins are so tight, right? Well, that's the same thing. And, and that's a thing in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And maybe most businesses, I've never, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in any in any others running them, but you really see is how that just like you, you'll know with Babylon or whatever. Yep. I'm sure, like you sort of do one thing, it seems fine, and then you're like, oh, I don't know if that's okay, and then it's sort of you can take you take it out or or even maybe fix it, but you still even that minimal damage that was done prior without say in maybe prior to investigation, you know, it it, it six months later it just pops up out of nowhere, and then yep. you, you you will always feel your pain down the road for yep. anything you give, whether it's discount on uniforms paying for uniforms all those things mm-hmm. like companies can give all those things and they can give bonuses or whatever but the problem is is that it's just it's the same thing it's just the carrot right you're just you're not giving them anything because if you can't sustain it you you, you shouldn't start it that's right yeah and it is hard to especially when you're first starting out it's hard to know what what it is that you can afford to give people right and it's like you say and you're 100 right you can't give it and then take it away later like it just doesn't really work that way. People are just like, well, no, uh, yeah. Any of us would be. That's why yeah, any of yeah. us would be like, well, fuck you. Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like this yeah. is my money. You can't just 
you know, yeah. I'm still doing the same job and you want to pay me less now because you're, because you have your bad management. Yeah. And, that, and that's where we have to sort of, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I have a solution, but it, it, I think really it's important that, you know, operators go into that. You have to give people more than a paycheck. You have to train them. And that could be anything. Train mm-hmm. everyone how to always pick one or two people, show them how to run your business. Right. Right. If nothing, that doesn't mean they're going to run your business, but you've, you've done kind of your part. You've given them something over and above a check that is giving them knowledge that they can move forward on their own. Cause that's all, that's why we need. It's not that people always point to high turnover in restaurants. You have to have it. Yeah. If we, if, if you don't have high turnover, you know what, like, you're going to have to keep giving people raises. And you know what? We would love that. I wish we had that kind of money, sure. but you don't. And that's yeah. why, and and it is a business that's built on sort of the trade. So you're constantly training people. So if you're not training and moving people on, it's also important to move people on. Where it's this a thing, you see more so, I never saw this much in Europe or Japan, but here someone trains an employee and they expect them to stay forever. Right. And, and actually they get they get quite shitty if they don't. Yep. And that's and that's what we have to anyone you train, anyone you hire, you have to the second before you hire them, you have to hourly employees are going to leave. And it's it's that kind of dynamic that I yeah. you know because people don't if you get into the restaurant industry, you have to know it's constant training, it's constant training and building. Right. And then you know, in the long run it makes you better. It's harder. Yeah. That's why people don't like it. But you know, <laughs> sure. it, it'll it'll well it's a trend oriented business, right? Like yep. so if you're constantly training and changing like if you got the same bartender at Babylon constantly, well, you're going to serve the same bloody cocktail. That's right. right? Yep. Unless you unless you pressure them, or unless you offer more, unless you say, well, you know, offer more in a way of here. These are some cocktails I enjoy, and this is the direction I would like to go, or I want to use this gin, or what can you do with you know this rum, you know, things like that. If you're not there's there's lots of ways to do it, but it, and it's hard. Like to be actively like to be an active operator manager is hard because you know right there off the bat. That's at least 12 hours a day, usually yeah. 14, 16, right? Like, so you got to do your whole day or you either, you know, do all your business before your place opens. Then you do your day because, you know, if you don't do the day with the staff, they don't feel supported. You know, it's all those things. You, It's just, it's a, a commitment. It's, it's, it's a commitment going into it, Yeah, you know, that <clears throat> the restaurant, yeah, if you don't love it, run away. Yeah, get away for sure. I know. I think that that's yeah. what a lot of people don't understand is like what they think when you move into the ownership side, they see like some owners who just come in and have drinks at their bar at the end of the night or whatever. And that's like, yeah, that's all. That's some of it. But you don't realize how much work that person's already done to get to midnight where they're sitting down and having a drink with whoever's in there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> And that's what they point out. That, you know, God, it can't be that hard if they're yeah. know, having a drink, having a drink. Well, you know, they got here at nine o'clock this morning. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah, I think exactly. they can have a drink. Yeah. That's the thing too, and that's that's what and that's where we fell down a bit on that. Like, I think people should be able to have a drink at the end of the night or anything like that. But I mean, we 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 lost in that too in the hospitality industry that we just started feeding people too much alcohol mm-hmm. because and and really it it came and might sound silly, but I do believe it came from a good place because you really didn't have any other way to reward them. Mm-hmm. But you know, it just over time, it it just like many things. If it's if it's not monitored, it can get out of control. A hundred percent. And so like, since we just transitioned that now, this was an issue for you at one point in your career as well, where, um, yeah. So, and I don't know if you want to talk about this, if not, we can edit it out. It's no big deal, but like there was a stretch. Okay. So there's a stretch where, and I don't, I can't forgive me. I won't remember which restaurant you're working at the time where you kind of had a alcohol issue and you sort of disappeared for a while. Yeah. What I, I mean, I did. I, I mean, from, that's the thing. And one thing I'd say is that I had, you know, that was at Langdon and I had okay. an alcohol problem, you know, I was a blackout drunk from 18 years old. Right. Right. 
like I didn't, and over time, like through, you know, whether it's work or whatever, things distracted me. I got away from the booze, had kids, got away from the booze. And and I don't know. I just like one of those people, I just used it in an improper way. Like I, mm-hmm. there's, you know, basically there's other issues I have that instead of dealing with them, I drank so I could forget about them. Sure. And that's the way I coped. That was, became my coping mechanism. And that became a coping mechanism at a very early age. Like I can, I had my aha moment at like 16 or 15. Mm-hmm. So you know, that has nothing to do. The only thing I want to say is that people like these addictions, people always point to things like, oh, it's your job or it's this. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't, no, you can't not, have yeah. some, something like this cannot happen to you. Like, oh my God, you know, I was fine and then started the job and became an alcoholic. Oh, right. no. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I might drink too much, yeah. but no, you're not going to, you know, that's not because it's, I mean, it's, it's like many things, you know, it's, it's a, alcoholism is a long process and yeah. it yeah. just, it builds over time and it's just, it's a matter of you know, silly but it actually is very apt. Someone said to me once, you know, all you did was put a bottle where, you know, uh, a relationship should have been. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. And and really a bottle, and not a relationship, like a physical relationship, but what you're talking about is just a relationship of yeah. like, whether it's a relationship with a parent, a relationship with a friend, having someone you can actually say, hey man, I'm in trouble, mm-hmm. right? And that that's the key of, you know, because you, but I mean, with those things, it's hard. I mean, when you're in it, you think it's the only thing that'll save you. And then you just need, you need something I mean, I wouldn't wish what I did on anyone like that. That was just that was a horrible experience, like to be that frightened and that scared, thinking you had to take off and run away. And obviously I was planning. I figured my answer was I just I'll end it. Right. Right. So and that seemed like the, you know, the sensible thing to do. And even in fact, like you can see how twisted alcoholism and things can get you is that I actually thought at one point in my life that if I I could drink and drive, if I had if I just kept a, a knife in my pocket. So if they caught me, I'd just slip my throat. Oh, right. Wow. Like that's how insidious this, you know, this disease can be. And you, I don't know. I mean, I can't explain it. I got like whatever I went to my brink. And when I got there and I was, you know, and you have to decision, you realize, you know, all I can think about is my children. And so I think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to feel like that because that was, I can't, I just, you feel so lost and frightened and it's every single feeling you can imagine, you know, on crack. Like it's just like going, Everything's just, I've never had so much fear in my life. And um, yeah, and I think it's just, you sort of need to hit that. And, you know, I was fortunate that I did have um, some friends who you know, came and got me and said, right. you know, you got time to, well, they asked me, it was one funny, just my friend looked in the door and he said, are you dumb? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> uh, okay, so like you mentioned that you were kind of scared and you felt like you need to run away. Was it the pressure of the job that was getting to you or was it just like life caving in on you in general? No, it was the way I, because I never did. I never did. I, I chose to avoid life, right? I right. never dealt with life on life's terms. The only time I was happy was at work. I would feel like I, I because once I'm out of work, I, I feel like there's like no control. I have no control of anything and I don't. I mean, I don't know enough about it to know, but that's what it felt like. I would feel like literally when the last checkout at the end of the, at the end of the night, like I'd be, you'd have the energy, but at the, I just remember this and I don't, I've never really looked deeply enough into it, but I would, as the last check would go, I would become deeply like um, almost depressed, like immediately. Hmm. And it would just, it was like this weight on me. And that was just really what it is, is your body and your life telling you, you might be doing well at work, but the rest is garbage. Like I'm ignoring my family. I'm ignoring my wife. Um, you know, I'm just, because I'm thinking it's all about me and I have to do all, you know, if you had my job, you'd understand, but you, you know, do you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. all this pit, pity garbage. It's very self-involved. And, yeah. Oh yeah. No, yeah. it's totally yeah. self-involved. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, 
And then that's what, you know, that's the way I grew up. You know, I was kind of on my own for the most part. So, you know, it, it is what it sort of is what it is, right? Yeah. Like we all have yeah. our journey. No, Everyone's for sure. got, you know, find me a person that doesn't have some shit to deal with. Oh, 100%. Like I, anyone who wants to go back and listen to the episodes I, that where Dan interviewed me on the show will hear my journey in that situation as well so i've been through a lot of this shit as well so i totally get where you're coming from where it's just like you just get like it's something that's a little bit outside of you that you don't need it's almost feels like it's happening to you as opposed to being a conscious decision after a while and uh then and it's and you're just doing it <laughs> well that's it yeah and that's right because it all creeps up right it's bad mm -hmm. behaviors and your body yeah. is going to like if you choose even if your mind you can flip your mind off all you want but it's it's going to it's going to catch up to you like anything because you just, I mean, if I've learned anything, there's certain ways. It seems to me that, well, put it this way. If I behave a certain way, everything's fine. If I behave another way over time, it gets worse and worse and things get worse and they compound. And if I don't, and it's just really, I, uh, the only way I can put it is that it's just dealing with life on life's terms. It's yeah. instead of saying, you know, every time something happens, you know, instead of internalizing it and feeling that you're the only one on earth that this is happening to, or you're the only one on earth who could, you know, is married to such a person or you're only a person on earth that has a job like this or an owner or a, even better. It's never a job. It's always the, your boss, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's one of those things, right? Yeah. It's always, it's just silly, right? Like it's, yeah. it's just a thing, you know what? Life's hard, but it's worth it. So. Right. It is. Yeah. That's good. And it's great that like to see you healthy and happy and like, back in this in the position you're in so let's get back to talking a little bit about that uh, so sort of what i something i'm interested in knowing is like with all this sort of training you've gotten from all over the world really how do you think all of this forms like sort of your culinary style today and how would you describe your culinary style if they if you can um i well i mean you know someone said just tell them you make good food yeah um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah that was one of my one of my sons said that the uh i and it's kind of like that i mean the culinary style will what we would do is, I mean, typically you use what's around you use and, and use what's around, like Kitchener, right? So we go into Kitchener, you know, I wanted to have it reflect Kitchener and that's why we called it the Berlin, mm -hmm. you know, because that was, you know, the original name of Kitchener until I think 1917. And, um, so just, and reflecting in that. So you just want to use what I, I want to create a cuisine of what's around it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we've got then base, I mean, it's kind of beat to death now, but in and, and that with the way we look at our food, like even if whether it's, we, it could start with any product, it could start with an onion or it could start with a chicken, but you sort of, I mean, one of the best things was someone showing me, and that's why I like talking to farmers and producers, because the way they approach things and see things is very different. Like they would, you know, I remember just when I started, there was just a gentleman working with, um, uh, at, uh, oh, Delft, it was Delft Blue Farms and they had, uh, you know, veal growing here. And then there was some uh, a couple of neighbors, like even a couple miles down the road or whatever, you know, had were doing asparagus. But what in his idea was that all this food was tied because all these, you know, the the asparagus and the um, you know the veal and anything you're foraging on the way or anything like that, these are all coming out of the same water system. Like they're all sharing a system, and sort of that's the way we kind of put dishes together. We try and tie things together as opposed to. Just grabbing. I mean, I we I always did that before. You know, would use ingredients from all over the world. I mean, or Japan or anything like that. So it's really using kind of what I've learned and just applying it to where wherever I happen to be at that time. And and whatever. Like I do think restaurants have personalities. Hotels have personalities. You use those things, and it just almost like you know you you sort of have to immerse yourself in it a bit. Like you know, sit where the guest sits. What is it? What are you seeing out the window? What is and then just 
you know, using those, I guess, sort of sensory perceptions on to sort of help guide where you want to go with the food. And I, once we started doing that, we noticed the first time I did it was at Langdon. I did it with Dave Sider, who is now a chef in Niagara. We had just such a great time and you could see it was unreal. Like the, within like an hour, like there was a real buzz in the dining room. It, it's the first place I have actually ate sort of sense of place cuisine was at Manresa in California. And that I've never, like when you have it and you're in it, you almost can't explain it. Like it's just, the food feels perfect and it feels as it should be. Like there's no real, eh, you know, you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's no, like could he use this, could he use a bit of that, but it's, it's, you're actually creating, putting together sort of a, a, fl- a flavor matrix that people really otherwise don't, don't have because they kind of are just grabbing, you know, the, whatever the, unless they're being specific, most people are just picking up whatever they got, whether it's onions. I mean, the onions could be from God knows where the carrots are just, whether it's Walmart or the grocery store or even anything like that. For most people, you know, on a daily basis, you're not tying your food together. So, I mean, that's another thing that we want to do in, in our restaurants is, you know, part of that. Well, when we look at everything, we say, you know, that steak, uh, is someone going to sit there and eat that and feel like there's value for price paid? So we want to do that with everything, even the drinks, the wine, everything. Wine is a really good example of that because, wine you see in um that you know a 12 this this wine is great it's very simple because you could say this wine is great at 12 dollars, but it's not good anymore at 14 right that's what i see that that's what i like and try try to use those examples with people a lot because when i learned wine that was really that was really something that was really stuck with me and that because it's value it's yep. not and and we don't and, and and we struggle with that too and i think that's another issue that a lot of restaurants have now too that and i mean when i say other restaurants have i mean i'm 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 a part of that problem i don't i'm not trying to say that you know we're doing anything different but i think that we, we have to concern ourselves with our pricing and saying even like specials or saying you know you're going to have the lowest hamburger on king street in waterloo or something like that but you, how are you going to recoup those costs because typically what happens is you know, we were always trained that, oh, they come in and they buy the foie gras for $12 and then they buy all these other things. Well, people don't do that anymore. Hmm. If, if you have a special, I mean, you might see it too. If you have something on special, they come in, they have that special. Yep. <laughs> they might even share it and then they're out. Yes. And that's just, but that's, that's the way it is now. And I think, so trying to do it in that way, you're just, you're, you're, I mean, maybe it is, maybe our customers have caught on to our ways or whatever, but mm. I, I think we just need really like proper pricing across the board now for everyone. I think we have to try. And I yeah. know it's going to it terrify so many people because, you know, when I go back now with all the, you know, when we go back, God, I, I, I haven't started looking at pricing yet. So I don't know what prices are going to be, but I'm a little nervous. Uh, well, yeah, it's good. It's, I mean, there's no choice really. Like eventually everything gets transferred on a guest. Otherwise you can't stay open. And uh, that's an unfortunate situation, but it is, uh, that is what it is. Like there's no other, like we all need to, to somehow make enough money to keep the doors open. So, and I think that's a really good point. Like to our customers or guests, you know, I think that that's a point too, is that you can, if it doesn't mean anything, fine. But, um, in me, if you don't, even if guests, if we don't operate property properly, there's no restaurants, but if guests, you know, keep, if we can offer what we should be offering in value for price paid, we shouldn't have trouble. Right. If we if we under deliver and try and cheap out a guest, of course we're going to get in trouble. But you know, if if the guest also has to realize that if they don't support their local restaurant, they won't have one. Right. So I mean, and you can see that more and more. Before the pandemic, they were predicting one percent of Canadians would be working from home. What does that look like now? I know, crazy. And they were predicting that restaurants and like cocktail bars like yours will become were starting to become more important. Because they're gonna, they're playing, a, they're playing a more significant role in socializing in in our country. So 
so now even more so, I think they're going to like, now they're even more important. I think we're all wondering what role we really need to play. Yeah. It's going to be interesting when we go back. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about before we let you go is one thing that you are also very famous for, at least within our community is uh, staff retention. You almost have like a cult like following that comes with, goes with you from place to place. Uh, even a lot of people going out to Fogo Island with you, which is quite an undertaking for someone. What is it that you think, what, what are you, what are you doing? You don't have to give away any secrets or something like that. How do you maintain such staff loyalty? How important is that to you? Maybe talk a little bit about that. I think, well, I've been fortunate, like with the, you know, with, with, I mean, the Berlin too and, and Langdon, but also, so, I mean, especially like Polo and, and Laura Mill. And I think the main thing is you have to give them more than a paycheck. Like I was saying, you have to know training is imperative. They have yeah. to learn. They have to be learning constantly. You have to give them, you can't, if, if you have, you know, 40 cooks and you just put in a menu and it never changes. Well, don't wonder why people are leaving. They right. want to learn and everyone, and also too being in, you know, you have to be, you have to almost always be sort of on, almost on the side, or you have to be in the middle. You almost have to have this HR mentality, is you have to consider both sides. And 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 you have to explain to them. You can't just come in, and, and you owe them that, too, because you're explaining to them, these are the troubles I have if you want a dollar more, right? Like, show them, show them. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of their, their knowledge as well. And you know what? Every time I've done that, it's worked. And they said, look, okay, how about we talk about this again in three months or six months? Right. And I said, that'd be great. And also putting people, finding out, you know, I'm not just, when I went to, you know, whatever, when I was training, you know, I'd go into work one day, you know, and in Japan was a good, like, so I'm peeling melons there for God knows how long. I don't know when. <laughs> and one day I come in and the chef's just like, no, 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 you're, you're on, you're in that section today. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. So I think people don't like that anymore. You can't manage just as a group. You have to manage as individuals. And I mean, at the end of the day, if you pe- put people in a job that they want to be in, they're going to do it better. Right. And, you know, and you give them the training they want as opposed to what you want to train them for because it's more convenient for you. That's like I found that over time. That's just became like putting a square peg into a round hole. If you want to keep people, give them a reason to stay. That's basically it. And I didn't I mean, I'm not like I invented, I, you know, a, a gentleman now who works with uh, he works with Rob Feeney uh, West. His name's Michael Bruff. He was the one that really pointed it out to me. He was one of the he was the restaurant chef at the Four Seasons in Vancouver. And going through this matrix with him and talking about him, you have to give them more, have mm. to give them more than a paycheck. A lot of this stuff I regurgitate mostly is from people I've worked with. Sure. That's you know, how we all learn to do it. Right. You know, you learn from somebody else and then you repeat and expand. Yeah. You have, I mean, that was one of the most important things that, you know, you have to just give, give them more. Like once they're quite often you see like people are so shagged up in their, in their operations. And it's because like, and I often think like if you're running into money trouble or things like that, or things getting, are getting confusing, you know, people should take that time. Take a break. Take a week off. Look at your business. Give your give your staff a break or get them, I don't know, you know, doing landscaping. Who knows? I have no idea. Yeah. But the thing is, you're better off taking that time. Assess your business again. What are you doing? Or even as the owner, step away for a few days. And then you can let, let yourself clear. Go through your employees. Allow yourself to know your employees. Don't tell you that's the way you're basically, your food is going to come out. You're going to, it's, it's always very reflective. I think in the quality of the food is really has a lot to do with the quality of the way people are being treated. Right. If you care about the food and you care about the staff and you care about people and you have values and you've got a moral compass and you know, this, that'll all translate. Yeah. That's, that's a good tip for anyone listening right now who's trying to get into management in the business. Okay, so the one thing, uh, the last thing I'd like to ask you about before we let you go, and thanks for giving us all the time today, is you've done so many different 
job sort of within your small field of industry there, like from being literally on the line, doing the cooking to running the place to menu creation to like even getting the consulting work. What's uh, what's sort of your favorite role if you have one? Oh, I think if I could just make money uh, (laughs) and writing menus. Oh, yeah. I I could. Yeah. I could I could read cookbooks like actually I do. I just read them all day. Yeah. I don't know. Like I could I just love I mean you just the imagination, uh the I it's brilliant, it's amazing. I could be if I could get paid for just researching and writing menus, oh I'd love that. <laughs> Great. Well and, thanks and I'd work from home. Oh yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you can check out some of the menus that Johnson's created around town at and uh, correct me if I get any of this wrong or forgotten any, but we got a Laura Mill. We have S and V Uptown. Am I forgetting anyone? That's it. Well, yep. and we did, we did, we did help open. Uh, we started with the Good Food Company in Guelph with the Hope House. Okay. Uh, we helped, we helped launch that, and we're still sporadically working with them now. But uh, the person at the head of that now is uh, Kay Miller at the Hope House, so they're all doing uh, amazing work there and putting out food like for the community. They grow it, and they uh, put out uh, you know great nutritionist meals for uh, that are super affordable for everyone in the community. Awesome. Well, you can check out any of these menus at any of these places that Jonathan has done. Check him out before he goes into working from home full time in solitary confinement. (laughs) Get him while you can. Thanks so much, Jonathan. We really appreciate you coming on and doing the show. Take care, Kip, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Good to see you. Thanks Thanks very much. much.